This morning we'll look at uh, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, uh, down through chapter 2, verse 4, 1, 12 to 2, 4. You know, you don't have to be in the ministry very long before you encounter some disgruntled people. Indeed, indeed, you don't even have to be a Christian very long before you can find yourself in the midst of some church squabble. As much as everyone knows it should not ever happen, criticism and hurt feelings and strife and division are not unknown in the church. Now, we tend to think that back in the pristine days of the New Testament that it wasn't like that. In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul has to deal with these same ugly things. Indeed, as Paul writes this epistle to the second, uh, this second epistle to the Corinthians, the great apostle himself has become the focus of the church's criticism and suspicion and distrust. In our text of the morning, we hear him defending himself. And as we hear him share his heart, <clears throat> I think we learn some things about how we ought to think. We learn the kind of perspectives that will minimize strife and division in the church. We, we learn the attitudes which kept the apostle from being dragged into the bitterness of the dispute. Today, before we come to the Lord's table, let's consider these uh, things that are antidotes to church squabbles. For never is it more imperative that we put away such things as it is as we gather before the table of the Lord. Well, let me read the text, chapter 1, verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We have done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand, and I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of, of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice I plan to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. When I planned this, did I do it lightly or did I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say yes, yes and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you to your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. So if, for if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I grieved? 
I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed by those who ought to make me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of, a great, out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Before we get started, um, let me just explain a little bit of the background of what's going on here so that you can understand what's happening. Paul had originally planned to visit uh, Corinth and um, uh, as part of a larger trip sometime in the future. And then he changed his plans. He saw a way that he could come to Corinth and then go on up into Macedonia and then come back to Corinth again before he went to Judea. In other words, visit him twice. But then hearing of some trouble in Corinth, he went earlier than he had expected, and he refers to that as a, as a painful visit in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 1. For while he was there, some hostile person or persons uh, confronted Paul, and calling into question his apostleship, uh, uh, really betraying him and attacking him, while the church apparently stood by doing nothing, accepting all of that. They betrayed the very apostle who planted that church. So Paul left and uh, changed his plans. And uh, rather than uh, go back right away, because he, he, he decided that would only make matters worse, instead with a broken heart, he sat down and wrote them some hard things, what he calls a tearful letter addressing the problems that needed to be addressed in the church. But the church at Corinth misinterpreted all of this, probably with some help from the false teachers who were there stirring up trouble. And they concluded that the Apostle Paul was fickle. He was vacillating. He talked out of both sides of his mouth. He said he was going to do one thing, and then he did something else. He can't be trusted. He has no concern. He's breaking his promises to us, and that doesn't mean anything to him. He just, uh, we don't understand this guy. We don't have any confidence in him anymore. And uh, they were ra rather bitter and grievous in the way they dealt with Paul. So in these verses, the Apostle Paul offers some defense of what he has done, his changes of plans, and why he made those changes of plans, and wh where his heart was in all of this. And really, this whole big section, which is fairly lengthy, divides into three lines of defense. But since the, since the apostles uh, write and act as examples for us, let me take these three defenses and turn them into positive exhortations to you. Uh, this is what I think the text has to say to us this morning as we draw from the, uh, the, the mentality and the, the, the thinking of the Apostle Paul. The first exhortation is this. To live like pilgrims. Live like pilgrims. According to my dictionary, the word pilgrim means one who journeys to a foreign land. It's from the Latin word peregrinus, which means foreigner. It's especially useful to us, though, because it has always a religious connotations, especially in our culture, where we know of the pilgrims coming to this land uh, in order to, uh, to practice their uh, faith and, uh, and to be free of persecution. We all know about pilgrims. Now, now, the Bible doesn't use the word pilgrim, but the substance of the meaning is always there. You may remember our study of Genesis about Abraham, who for his whole life 
lived as a pilgrim in this land where he was a foreigner, claiming and trusting the promises of God while he lived as a foreigner in the land of Canaan. In the New Testament, the, the Apostle Peter speaks of, of, uh, of it very explicitly. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In other words, Peter exhorts them to live like holy pilgrims, strangers and aliens in a hostile pagan world. Well, now that's the perspective that we find with the Apostle Paul in verses 12 to 17. As he argues for his integrity, he argues for, for dealing with them with sincerity and with simplicity and in holiness. He's, he's saying that I've, I've acted the part of the pilgrim here, a faithful pilgrim. We see it in verse 12, for example. He mentions how he conducts himself in the world in holiness. That's a pilgrim attitude. Holy means separate, separate to God. So Paul conducts himself in this world as one who is separate, set apart for God. In other words, he lives like a pilgrim, like an alien and a stranger in this world. In verse 12, he also says that he does not act according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. There's that distinction again between how the world thinks and acts and speaks and how God's holy people think and act and speak. Jesus said it in John 17 when he prayed for his disciples who are in the world, but not of the world. God's people are to be different. We're holy pilgrims. In fact, in verse 17, he says just about the same thing. Do I make my plans in a worldly manner? Of course the world talks out of both sides of its mouth. Of, of course the world is filled with wheeler dealers. Of course the world acts in ways that lack integrity. But Paul says, God's people don't act that way, and I don't act that way, because we're different. We don't plan and, 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 and act in a fleshly manner. That's the word, world, word worldly means here. We don't plan and act in a fleshly manner. We're a holy pilgrim people. We see this pilgrim theme one more time in verse 14. Here the apostle looks to the day of the Lord Jesus, the final day when the Lord returns and our pilgrimage is complete. And what does he see there? He sees himself boasting about these believers in Corinth and them boasting about him. In other words, Paul understands that in the big scheme of things, these people in Corinth who are so upset at him, and he are part of the same pilgrim people. We're on the same team. We're strangers in the world. And therefore, we're bound together. I know when I was in the Air Force, uh, what units were really close-knit? Not the one I was in, down in Tacoma, in western Washington, with lots of people around and lots of things to do. No, we weren't. We're a bunch of individuals doing our thing. But now, in not North Dakota, that was a different thing. Because all they had was each other in a pretty desolate place. And that's how God's people are in the, in, in the world. We're pilgrim people in a world that's pretty desolate for God's people. We're bound together as a pilgrim people. Now you think what that means. That means we don't do things the world's way, we do things God's holy way. The world may have no integrity, but we have integrity, Paul says. I have integrity because I'm God's holy pilgrim. And we may be strangers and aliens and sometimes outcasts in the world, but we're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. And so like fellow pilgrims, we take care of each other. 
And things may not go as we expect sometimes. Of course they won't. We're strangers and aliens here. So we're not surprised when they don't go as we, as we expect. And we're not surprised when, when others, uh, other people's plans get messed up because we're pilgrims. That's how life is for us. In short, we live like pilgrims. Not loners. Not hermits. But a company of holy pilgrims in a foreign land. Mutually dependent upon one another. Acting with integrity. That's, what, that's Paul's defense here. But this is also the exhortation of us to live as pilgrims. Dear people, so much of the strife and the division that haunts the church and tears up the church is caused by God's holy pilgrim people forgetting that's what they are and beginning to live like the rest of the world. That's why when persecution comes to the church, it is often... It often has a, it has a very unifying influence. For it reestablishes the distinction between the pilgrims and the pagans. But let's not make persecution necessary. God has called us to be a holy pilgrim people. We're on the same team. We're headed for the same eternal city. We serve the same king. We have the same agenda. For better or worse, we're all just pilgrims called by his grace. Now that's humbling. But that's also ennobling. And it ought to be unifying. That's Paul's defense. That's God's exhortation to us. Live as pilgrims. The apostle isn't finished. Second exhortation. Model the gospel. Model the gospel. This is what Paul's defense is. I've modeled the gospel. It's my exhortation to you this morning. Model the gospel. You know, one of the difficult issues that we face sometimes is the relationship between how people believe and how they live. On the one hand, we have people who profess to believe certain things and openly do otherwise. And, and, and we tend to be disgusted by that kind of behavior. We call those people hypocrites. Say they believe something, act opposite. At the other end of the spectrum, we have people who believe things and are determined to live out the implication of those things no matter what. And we get disgusted with that behavior. We call those people ideologues. <laughs> and generally in our culture, we like hypocrites better than ideologues. But whatever people say, God has called his people to consistently live out the faith we profess. We believe the gospel. We're to model the gospel. We're to wear the gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about doing. That's what he says he's doing in verses 18 to 25 where he gives us, interestingly, a theological basis for what he's doing, for his actions. He gives us two underlying doctrines. So let me explain to you and then we'll talk about how they apply. Two truths. First of all, that all, all of the promises God made throughout the ages, he's kept and fulfilled in Christ. All of the promises God made throughout the ages are fulfilled in Christ. In other words, the whole Bible is Christocentric. Interesting that Paul brings this up in this discussion about uh, their, their, their differences with him. Theological basis for, what he's, for, for his actions. All of the Bible is Christocentric, Christ-centered. That means in Genesis 3, when we read the promise of the seed of the woman who would destroy Satan, it's talking about Christ Jesus. 
It means that in Genesis 12, when we read about the promise of the seed of Abraham through whom the whole world would be blessed, it's talking about Christ Jesus. And in 2 Samuel 7, when God promises David that one of his sons will be called the Son of God and will sit on the throne forever, it's talking about the Lord Jesus. And in Isaiah 53, when the Lord talks about his suffering servant who will bear the sins of his people, it's talking about the Lord Jesus. The whole Bible is focused on showing us Jesus. And God has kept those promises. As Moses said, not one word has failed of all of God's promises. God hasn't said one thing and done something else. He said that he was going to do certain things and he fulfilled them in the coming of his son. God has faithfully fulfilled his promise in the gospel of Christ. That's the first theological principle. The second, God is still faithfully carrying out what he promised. We see this repeatedly in verses 21 and 22. God makes us stand firm. God anointed us. God set his seal of ownership on us. God put his spirit in our hearts as the guarantee of all that's still to come. In other words, God keeps on being faithful in regard to this gospel of Christ. God has been faithful in that everything is summed up and fulfilled in Jesus, and he keeps on being faithful in working that out. So Paul says, all we do is to simply mimic or mirror God's faithfulness in the gospel. God didn't say, yes, I'll send my son, and then say, oops, I've changed my mind, I'm not sending him after all. God didn't say, I'm going to give you my spirit, and then say, okay, forget it, I'm taking my spirit back. And Paul says, and neither did we say yes, and then say no. If God's yes means yes, then Paul says, my yes means yes. Now, Paul's not just claiming that he has good intentions. He's going way beyond that. Paul is explaining that the God who faithfully kept his promise over hundreds and hundreds of years and sending his son, that same God is the one who sent Paul to preach the gospel of his son. And that same God is the one who sent his spirit to those who received the gospel of his son. And that same faithful God is working all of this out in Paul and in Corinth as he worked it out in Christ. As for Paul, he says, I just live the gospel. That's all I do. I just model mirror the gospel. Actually, Paul puts it in a way that's quite picturesque. He says, through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. In other words, Paul says, God has spoken in his son the good news of the gospel. And what's my life? My life is one big resounding. Amen. (laughs) That's all I do. I just say amen with my life to what God has done faithfully, faithfully, faithfully in Christ. That's modeling the gospel. You see, that's exactly what we're called to do. We can't give up on our brother when he fails us without denying the gospel. We can't treat someone better because they're wealthy or good looking without denying the gospel. We can't act like we're perfect and you got a problem without denying the gospel. In a million ways we're called to live out 
the very message we proclaim to model in real life the grace of God, the love of Christ, the forgiveness of sinners, the hope for the hopeless, the certainty of God's promises. And can you imagine how the strife and contention and bickering in the church would cease if all we saw in one another was the humility of Jesus, the grace of God, the acceptance of God's love, the forgiveness of sinners, the hope and joy of new life, the sweetness of fellowship with our Creator. If that's all that you saw in me and that I saw in you, you see, churches may have a lot of wonderful plans and, uh, and extensive programs and mission statements and all kinds of agendas. But let me tell you, here's God's agenda. God is molding his redeemed people to model, to wear, to look like the gospel of Jesus. That's what God's doing. And everything else is just froth. What a challenge, huh? Paul says, this is where I am. I'm just saying amen to what God has said in Christ. One more exhortation. One more line of defense and one more exhortation that comes to us, and that's this. So have a heart. Have a heart. We talked about ideologues a minute ago. Do you know why people so dislike folks that are driven by their ideals, driven by their beliefs? It's not that we always prefer hypocrites. There are a few people who prefer hypocrites, but most of us don't like hypocrites either. It's just that with people with such strong, rigid, unbending beliefs are often heartless. These days we see it in the religious zealots who are willing to become terrorists. Folks, similar things happen in the church. People who believe the very things we hold dear here. Who hold fast the confessions that we believe are good statements of the faith. Can be heartless. People who talk about the importance of holy living can be heartless. People who believe the gospel can be heartless. I doubt that I'm the first one to ever notice that. Oh, but in verses 23 to chapter 2, verse 4, Paul so distances himself from that kind of an attitude. Look at all the examples of a heart of compassion that we see in Paul. Verse 23, it was in order to spare you 
that I did not return. These people have publicly humiliated the apostle. They've betrayed him. And what's his concern? How can I show mercy to these people? Verse 24, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Let me tell you, the apostles had the right to tell the church what to do. They had a unique position that none of us have. They were the personally hand-picked representatives of Christ, given the authority of Christ for the building of his church. Paul says, I didn't lord it over you. I came alongside of you like a brother in hopes that you would share my joy. Verse 24, it's by faith you stand firm. These people had grievously sinned against Paul. He could easily have just written them off, saying, okay, that's it, I'm done with those folks, man. They have departed. They have made their bed. I'm done with them. And here he is, assuming that they will stand firm. He is putting the best possible spin, not the worst. Verse 1, I determined I would not make another painful visit to you. Paul was smart enough to know that he could be criticized by the church when he didn't show up, when he said he was going to show up. But Paul says, my concern was, I did not want another confrontation with you. We've had enough strife. I did not want another visit like that last visit. Oh, how different from people who seem to love the confrontation, no matter how many people it hurts. Verse 2, if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad? Can you imagine this? The great apostle Paul is talking to the believers in Corinth, which is the most troubled church in the New Testament. It's full of problems. From the beginning to the end, it's full of problems. Paul is saying, my heart is so wrapped up with you folks that if I, I can't afford to grieve you, it will hurt me too bad. How different from ministers who keep themselves aloof, uncaring professionals. Verse 3, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I should not be distressed. I had confidence in you. Paul um, knew that this church needed correction. But he calculated that a, a, a letter that broke his heart to write would be a substitute for a, a visit which would be even more painful. And so he chose the course of the least humiliation for this erring church. The course of the most optimistic discipline as he addressed their problems. He believed in them. He hoped in them. He rejoiced in them and he looked for them to share his joy. We have voices calling for more di church discipline these days. And, and, and I believe in church discipline. We need more accountability. It's sadly lacking in Christ's church. 
But you know, one of the problems that we get into when we get into church discipline is that often those who are calling for it have, a, have a, an attitude of a, of a punitive thing. We're going to punish these people. Let me tell you, the gospel is that Jesus took our punishment. Church discipline is not about punishing anyone. It's only about holding people accountable so that they will turn back to Christ, at which time we welcome them with open arms because they're just like us. that heartless, punitive, vindictive spirit that gives church discipline a bad name. Finally, verse 4, Paul says, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears to let you know the depth of my love for you. I ask you, how long has it been since you shed a tear because someone was alienated from you? How long has it been since you wrote someone to tell them how much you love them when you know they're angry at you? Here Paul opens the door and lets us look into his heart a little bit. And what do we see? We see the heart of the Savior. We see the love of Christ. We see the tenderness of a mother. We see the passion of a father who knows the weaknesses of his children. But what we never see in Paul, even in this church discipline kind of situation, what we never see in Paul, in the midst of his love for sound doctrine, and his holding fast to the tenets of the faith, and his unwillingness to compromise the gospel, what we never see in Paul, is a self-righteous theologue who really doesn't care about hurting people. And my question to us is, if you look into our hearts, what would we see? Would we see the heart of Christ like we see in Paul? Or would we see the heart of a Pharisee? The truth is we get a glimpse of each other's hearts every time someone wrongs us or treats us unfairly. And then we see what spews forth from the heartless. Or then we see what a healing balm flows from those with a heart of compassion, the heart of Christ. There's no part of the church life that's more communal than the sacrament that we're about to celebrate. You can't celebrate this by yourself, you know. The very presence of one loaf testifies to the fact that you're only part of the whole. The very fact that there was only one Jesus hanging on the cross, only one blood spilt for our sins, testifies to the fact that we who trust in Jesus are related in him. So how could we ever come to this table divided 
or filled with animosity or resentment toward one another. When we do, we grieve the very Savior whose sacrifice we celebrate. We insult the very spirit of grace. So this morning, as we always do as we approach the table, I call you to examine yourself. But not as so much as we all often think the little secret sins of my heart or whatever. Examine yourself about your relationship to the body of Christ. Examine yourself about the animosity and the bitterness and the division and the strife which creeps in so easily into the church. This morning I call you to renewed vigilance, to heed the exhortations that we can draw from the way Paul spoke in his own defense. We're strangers and aliens here. A holy people in a hostile world live as pilgrims. That implies some integrity among us. All that we have is the gospel. That God has kept his promises in Jesus. Wear it. Model it. Or you look like the grace of God showing forth. And as we hold forth the gospel and hold fast to sound doctrine, beloved, have a heart. Hey? Have a heart. Have a heart. Amen. Well, Lord, this church is not immune from strife division sometimes like everyone else and it arises in our own hearts and we get sucked into it because it's the way of our flesh and it's the way of the world Lord it's not your way it's not what was modeled for us by your apostles it's not what is uh, called for in the word So, Lord, as we humble ourselves to come and to receive these tokens of the gospel again, we pray that you would work out the gospel in our hearts more fully than before. We might see ourselves as you see us. We might have a sense of identity as, as, as what you call us. that this whole church might reflect that and how we deal with each other. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.